Hello and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole. I am Akiko Taramoto. Today we are thrilled to be here with our good friends and actually the first repeat podcast guest here on Stand Partners, Brant Taylor, cellist in the Chicago Symphony. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And now Brant's partner, Roderick Branch, who is a musician, but these days primarily an attorney and in the context of today's episode, a super fan, because we're going to get that audience perspective today. That's what it's going to be about from someone who comes to all sorts of concerts, not only in Chicago, but around the world. And we want to know what you see that we miss when we're on stage. <laughs> I know there's lots of musicians that probably say, oh, I could never be married to another musician. Or some people that say, oh, you know, I could only be married to another musician. I think there's a lot of envy of people who actually managed to get out of our little tiny, you know, group of people and, and meet somebody who does something else and can sort of add that diversity to your life. I mean, I would, I would, I don't know if I would say that that applies to us because when we met, I was still playing the cello, but at least what I ended up doing, yes, is definitely outside the field of music. Although I do tend to spend a lot of time around musicians and at concerts simply because of, well, it's something that I like to do. And it's also related to the way that our schedules work. Brant's, you know, working, times are Thursday nights, Friday nights, and Saturday nights, which for somebody who's got an office job like me are generally the times that we have off. And so I spend a lot of those times going to concerts. Otherwise, we'd be passing ships, I think. Yeah, probably. Well, we'll call that a partial escape for you, Brant. You managed to sort of get out of the musician pairing here. But I mean, Roderick, can you tell us what brought you to your current career? What, what is that that you're doing now? Sure. I was in, well, I, I'm a lawyer now. I practice uh, capital markets transactions at a large law firm. And what brought me to my career was probably ending up with a degree in English literature, French literature, and music right out of undergrad and quickly deciding that I had nothing else to do but apply for law school. Uh, <laughs> this sounds familiar. I, th I think I've said that exact thing. So I didn't, I didn't get into law school. So that, that <laughs> fixed it for me. <laughs> Are you also on the board of the Chicago Symphony? Or one of the one of the governing, I forget what it's called. Oh, I'm what's called a governing member, which is kind of like the junior board. The governing members vote to elect members of the board of trustees. And how many concerts would you say you go to, or how, how many programs do you think you see of the CSO every season? Yeah, that's a good question. The CSO probably plays 48 weeks a year. Is that right, Brant? Um, I don't go every single week, but I would say that I would go most weeks. And that's been now for how many years, would you say? Well, I guess I started actively listening to the CSO when I was in live performance anyway. When I was in law school, Brant and I met right around the time that I was graduating as an undergrad. Um, and we were friends for the next four years or so. The CSO would come on tour to Boston where I was going to law school or New York, where I first started my first job. And I would usually go, you know, hear the concerts either at Symphony Hall or at Carnegie Hall. That would be going back to probably 2000, 2001. So call it over 20 years at this point. 
Well, let's get right to it because I'm really interested to hear what you see and hear, Roderick, that we miss, even though we think we're uh, right in the middle of the action. And we can do the math. I mean, you've been coming to concerts for 20 years and however many, 20 or 30 programs a year. So, that's that's a significant amount of performing that you have seen. And you guys have, you get something that we don't, you know, we play the same concert and then we ride home in the car together and record a podcast about our thoughts, but we were both on stage. Whereas you, you know, Brant will be performing the concert. Roderick, you're out there in the house. And so, your perspective is going to be different. We were saying before we uh, turned on the mics that there are probably a lot of weeks where, Brant, you'll feel like things were just terrible and you weren't having any kind of a good time on stage. And then Roderick, you might say it was an amazing, you know, life-changing performance. <laughs> Does that happen? That happens sometimes. I'd say m- more often it happens that the way that I felt the concert went on stage turns out to be, you know, similar to the impression that you had from the audience. That's usually true. I will say that I'm a harsh critic of most concerts and I will usually be very honest with what I think I heard um, when I talked to Brandt about things. You know, I definitely have opinions about repertoire, conductors, the particular people who may be playing particular parts on the stage, which can make a big difference. But yeah, sometimes there's a concert that, particularly with repertoire that I'm not as familiar with, maybe it's, you know, 20th century or, 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 or premieres of works where when I talk to, you know, my friends in the orchestra afterwards, they think, oh, what, or they say, you know, what a mess. That was, uh, you know, there were a lot of things going on on stage where from the audience perspective, it's not always as apparent. And the performance aspect of what happened collectively uh, ends up being convincing for the audience overall. Are we worried about nothing when we're on stage rehearsing? No, I I think it's a relief because you want to feel like the the product is good. If if I actually thought everything I was worried about was actually happening out, you know, like for the audience, I I don't think I could function. I think I just like just refuse to go out there one day. I'm like, (laughs) no. I mean, orchestras are, let's face it, inexact organisms compared to smaller groups of people. It's true. So, I mean, I think what you hear going on around you on the stage, if you're in an orchestra, there's always going to be, I don't know, it's just, there's a, it's like a, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the cost of doing business with that many people. There's things that happen around you on the stage and some of it maybe has to do with different concert halls and how, how they, you know, translate the sound to the audience. But certainly our hall in Chicago is not known for being one that envelops the sound in a, you know, warm echoey glow. It's a fairly honest hall. And even in a space like that, there's a blend that transpires uh, sort of on the stage. Maybe the people, Roderick never sits in the first few rows of, of the hall. That's probably different sound. But if you go back any appreciable distance, I think a lot of the stuff that we hear on stage actually just does become a part of the blend of of sound, even things that's around us might not sound like they would blend with each other at all. And I think that's, it's good news for us. I mean, it, by necessity, it has to be a different experience. I mean, you guys are sitting on the stage next to your colleagues with sheet music in front of you. You've also sat through a rehearsal process where you've maybe you're receiving, you're, you're receiving direct instructions from, you know, the conductor who may want to be doing certain things one way or another. And f- for me, you know, we show up ideally a mood to listen to the performance of a work, you know, in the evening 
looking to be entertained. And yes, I purposely don't like to sit close to the stage. I find that when I do, I start hearing individual players doing individual things. I much prefer sitting, you know, a little further back where I get much more of a blend of the, you know, the overall group as a whole. And while I do, again, particularly with a repertoire that I'm familiar with, I do end up paying a lot of attention to the detail. What I hear is something that's probably, I would guess, sounds a lot more finished than what you all hear, you know, on the stage with 105 people around you, each doing, you know, their own thing, despite the fact that you're doing your, you know, they're attempting to do something collectively. You know, I, I think about it a lot, like what, what makes a great performance for the audience? And it's, there's, as you say, there's so many of us there that I think a performance where we're really fixated on, on the ensemble and like if little things are going wrong, I think that's not that it's not a great performance or not that I, that it can't be elevated at some point, you know, later on, like, you know, it's, it's not like it's doomed to, to not be a great performance from, from some point onward or something. But I do really hope that, that a great performance is about something other than the technical details. You know, I, I would like to feel that when little things go wrong here and there, that if it is, you know, if the, the, the aura is correct, that the audience is drawn to something else. I mean, it's like any other, you know, it's like a great solo performance or a great chamber performance. And, you know, I always, that's my wish for, for a concert. And, and so, yeah, I hope that someone's not like sitting out there going like, wow, I can really hear like individual things happening here. And, you know, to me, like, <laughs> I mean, certainly we've probably all had the experience of being in the audience at a concert and then talking with, you know, somebody that was also in the audience and finding that you had very different experiences of what you got out of it, how much you enjoyed it. You know, it's an interesting, we'll never know. I mean, you come most weeks to hear the Chicago Symphony and you said you used the word, you know, in a mood to be sort of entertained, but it's interesting how if, if you like one week less than the others, besides the repertoire and the conductor and the performance, if part of it might be your own, like what you walk into the hall with that evening. That's almost certainly true. I, you know, I can feel that in myself. Sometimes I walk in immediately after work or with something else on my mind. And the listening experience in those cases is completely different than when I'm in the mood to hear live music. But following up on what you just said, Akiko, I think that's, that, that is definitely true. I mean, the, the, you know, the repertoire has a lot to do with it. I mean, you can imagine a performance that's a very, you know, elevated, a very elevated performance of a particular work that may have two or three little things that didn't go exactly according to the score. It doesn't really take away from the fact, from the greatness of the performance, I would say. And it's actually taken me a while to realize that I think a lot of young listeners, particularly nowadays, walk into a concert hall expecting to hear a recording or maybe nowadays something streamed from Spotify or Apple Music where you know things have been edited to death and aren't really representative of how music sounds live and as I matured as a listener that took me a while to learn as well it's live performance things aren't always going to sound the way that they sound when you're hearing a recording and it's part of the beauty of of live music one of the other things that I noticed Maybe this week, especially, we happen to be performing Bartok and Charter for Orchestra. Which we happen to go here. Exactly. So we have both sides of, of this experience represented here. And I I felt that it was a piece that, in general, people know pretty well. I think that we are comfortable. It's a piece that you know well, that you feel others know well. 
And there's just like a, a sense that you know what to listen for without having to try too hard, that everybody has that that comfort level. And I think then when mistakes happen and the context is that you're very relaxed about it, and this is true for every level of performing, right? So if you're performing a string quartet or a solo piece and you know the way you react to things that don't go totally as planned is like the biggest indicator of how how well prepared something is or how prepared the concert is more than anything else. I think it's, you know, flaws are not in themselves a bad thing. I think that, you know, things happen and if you if if they just sort of become absorbed into the fabric of the experience and that's like it's still a great performance. I think it's when something is sort of unfamiliar or people are uncomfortable and you can sense that, you know, and like I said at any level, solo or orchestral or otherwise. And it's at that point that I think it's that the mistakes come into more focus in the performance in a way that you don't want them to. Among other things, I, the three of us, you know, help people prepare for auditions. And one of the things that, you know, comes up sooner or later is like, what's a, what's a mistake? It's like, if you miss a note, if you do something, you know, right away, should you, you know, pack up and head for the airport bar right away? Cause there's no <laughs> way you're going to pass on. But, you know, I say, just like you're saying, imagine you're in the audience. If, if you're watching somebody, whether it's a, somebody by themselves or a whole orchestra that really appears to be involved in enjoying the communicative aspects of music, there's so much that you forgive and it's not even a question of forgiving it. You just don't even remember little imperfections because they're just gone. And then immediately you're engaged with something else. Whereas, you know, contrast that with somebody who doesn't appear to be enjoying themselves or just sort of waiting for the next thing to go wrong or, or whatever. And of course that's a completely different listening experience. And we've had, we've all had both kinds of performances and everything in between, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's jump right to this week actually when, Akiko and I were playing, obviously, with L.A. Phil, this Bartok Concerto for Orchestra program, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and both you guys were in the audience. So, Brant, you got to trade your cello for a seat in the audience, and you both got to experience a different hall. Let's start with the halls, I guess, not necessarily to compare, you know, the sound one to the other, but maybe just talk about the experience of going into a different hall You've been to Disney before, but it's not your home base or anything. And maybe start with Brent. What was it like to just sit down and, you know, you hear the tuning A and you're, did you panic like you're supposed to be up there? <laughs> no, actually, I don't know exactly when it, when it changed for me, but at some point, you know, when I had the opportunity to go to a concert, whether it's just to hear another orchestra or to hear chamber music or to hear, you know, a great solo recital by somebody I guess maybe because so much of my time either in practice or in teaching others is spent listening with a critical ear that I don't have to work too hard to turn that off when I go and hear, you know, it's in, for me, I think it's a way of just reminding myself why I play music to begin with, which is you like to go and, and just not be critical necessarily or not be, not be in that role and just allow the music to happen and to receive it in the way that, that I would hope that our audience would. So it's, at this point, I'd say it's a subconscious thing. So if you add the hall to that, if you mention that, then it's, you know, it's like going to somebody else's house for 
for dinner. It's like, you know, the home-cooked food is, it tastes good even when it's bad because it's like, you know, somebody <laughs> else is putting effort into it and you're in their house and you're being a good guest. And so obviously you have a beautiful hall here to play in that has some some pretty distinct differences between its its sound and, and atmosphere and the one that I normally play in. So for me, that only adds to the experience because it's something special. It's not, not something that I, it's not a place I normally hear music and it's not a role that I'm, you know, I'd love to at some point go to hear more orchestra concerts. Maybe when I'm not doing it full time, I'll have more time to go and do it. But uh, for me, it's a, it's a largely a very special thing that's, you know, just different and takes me back to a time when I, you know, had a less as a performer and just a more sort of visceral listening response to, to music, which is obviously a great thing to have. I think that's really nice because I I have a much harder time doing that. I don't know if it's like like a competitive thing or something. Like I have a really tough time enjoying another orchestra's concert. And that sounds horrible. You <laughs> sound awful. But it, it's not and that's it's not always true. But you know, I really remember coming to Disney to watch the Chicago Symphony a couple of years ago and just being blown away. Like I, I really enjoyed it and and it made a really big impression on me, actually. And, and I remember being surprised because I thought, you know, I had a lot of conflicting emotions. It was like my old orchestra and we're not in it anymore. Like, I'm, am I going to let I'm myself? I'm sure they're terrible now. <laughs> yeah, am I going to be like disappointed <laughs> when mean, they sound awesome? We started you know? slowly falling apart the day that you two That's left. right. <laughs> Things were never the same. Right? So, yeah, I think I, I was worried that I that was going to like crowd out other things. And it didn't. I ended up just loving the concert and really just having nothing but great things to say and think about it, you know. But in general, I would say it's not easy for me to go to concerts. I just, it's very hard for me to shut off the critical voice, you know, and in you know, our own concerts included, if I guess sit out in the audience, it's it's really tough. Like I can't hear anything except the things that usually bug me or, you know, they're jumping out of the texture and I cannot contextualize it properly. And it's completely out of proportion to what's actually happening. I hope, I think, you know, I, but I can't tell. I really can't. I mean, I, w- I would agree with that in a sense. And I'm not obviously, I'm obviously not a professional musician like you guys are, but it has taken me also a lot, many years of listening to get to a point where I have to actively turn that off. Because if you listen to the concert with your music critic hat on detracts from the enjoyment of the experience. So sometimes you just have to, you know, lie back and and be ready to be entertained, you know, without thinking too much about the performance. That's a hard thing to do because my first inclination, the Kiko, I think is like yours to want to, to listen not only to the music, but to the performance itself with, with a lens of critique in place. And that's not always the smartest way to hear a concert if you're there, ideally, you know, just as a listener. Well, you mentioned something earlier, Roderick, about noticing the individual players on stage and how you know them. I mean, not only personally in some cases, but musically, you've been going to concerts for so long that these guys and girls are like, uh, in some ways, there's like pieces on a chessboard, right? And like you, you notice who's playing principal flute and oboe and bassoon and who's concertmaster and, you know, who's off, who's out sick and Akiko and I, for a little while, were going to a bunch of uh, NBA games here in LA. We would see the Clippers. And yeah, even after just a few games, you start feeling like you you know these people, like you, you know their tendencies and, oh, you know, he's he's going to make this free throw. <laughs> I assume that adds to the experience for you. I mean, you, you, you must like the familiarity and the kind of things that you can predict about the concert or the upcoming phrase, I would imagine. 
it definitely adds to the experience. I think, and I think it can be good or bad because if we compare it to the Clippers, right? You have a you probably have an ideal picture in your mind of what the ideal lineup yep. might be, <laughs> and you don't get that game after game or week after week in the orchestra world. So it depends. Sometimes, yeah, you know, I, I I was an amateur oboist for a number of years and. My ear goes straight to the oboe section anytime I'm listening to an orchestra. And sometimes I'll ask Brandt to find out if it's going to be my favorite member of the oboe section playing principal that week or not. And that can make a difference uh, if I'm on the fence as to whether I'm going to go to a concert or not, whether I'll actually take the time and make the time to go hear it or not. Well, so you've got the inside info, which is which is awesome. I mean, do you, when you came to Disney, for example, and now you don't know all the players, although you you knew some of them by name or reputation or whatever. What's it like to walk into a different hall, open up a different, I mean, even the program book is different, you, you know, different format and everything. Sure. No, I mean, it, as Brand said, it's a completely different experience to walk into Disney Hall, you know, in contrast to Symphony Center back home. I mean, I think Orchestra Hall was inaugurated in something like 1903 and it was designed by Daniel Burnham, who was the author of The Plan of Chicago which was this, you know, big urban plan penned right after the Chicago fire that was intended to create an urban design for the city after it all burned down in the late 19th century. And so we get the sense of all of that 125 years of history at this point that that orchestra has, you know, been performing either in that hall or at the auditorium theater next door. You walk into Disney Hall and, you know, the the building itself is only what 20, 25 years old at this point. The hall opened in October 2003. That's right. You were there. I was there. So yeah, not, not, not even in less than 20 years. Yeah, less than 20 years ago. So you don't have the same sense of permanence that you do when you walk into Orchestra Hall, but by the same token, it's a completely modern uh, facility with all kinds of bells and whistles, huge public spaces, very impressive contemporary you know, architecture by one of the most famous architects of our time. And it's, an, it's a very you know, impressive space to experience visually and spatially. The acoustics of the hall itself are very plush. We came this week with a friend of ours who went to a lot of concerts with us in Chicago. And he, he that was the first remark that he made when we asked him what he thought about the sound. You know, the sense in this hall is that there's sort of a, I compared it earlier to when you watch certain TV interviews where there's a sort of soft focus lens on that makes everything look wonderful and smoothed out and you don't see, you know, Barbara Walters wrinkles when you're looking at, you're watching her uh, on 2020 because of this special lens the camera uses. The acoustic in this, in Disney Hall is so good and so favorable, you know, the sense that you get is one, no, is Robert, one of very exactly round, very plush sound. performance. Yeah. You didn't realize we sound, we're just that good. Everybody needs a good surgeon. <laughs> it's like Botox for orchestra. You know, the, the acoustic in Chicago is, Orchestra Hall in Chicago is not known for having a plush acoustic. And I think the musicians in the orchestra would work harder than they would in another venue to make sure that the sound fills the space. And you get, you know, in comparison to, to a space like this one that has a very favorable, very resonant sound, you get a very direct, a very clear sense of the playing that in a way is more you know, sounds more live and, and less like a recorded performance than than the sound in Disney Hall, for example. Are you accusing us of playing recordings and doing the Milli Vanilli during our uh, live performances? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you two haven't been gone from Chicago so long that you don't remember the difference w- of what it feels like to play on both those stages. 
So, I mean, you've been here for quite a while, but... I mean, I kind of remember the general string aesthetic there being, you know, one of effort, you know, like let's let's really hold notes out all the way to the bar line or to the rest and, you know, put a little edge on the sound because it's just not going to come through otherwise. I, I don't know if that was your impression, Akiko. I mean, we just, I just remember we played out a lot. I think here, I think I told you, is I just, it's, it's strange to me. It feels a little bit like naked. Like we're, it, it's because what you're saying is actually very reassuring because to me sitting there on stage, and even when I go out and listen to, I, I feel that individual things pop out at me a lot and I don't always love the effect. I got the feeling in Chicago, like maybe we had a little more room to work with, like we could, we could really open up with the volume and the, you know, and of course the aesthetic of Chicago Symphony is is to is to really play out. I think so. Some of that is is the difference too. I think it's it's hard for me to remember, but how this how the actual acoustics affected my playing. But I just remembered, you know, or feeling encouraged all the time to really to really produce sound. I mean, Roderick sometimes travels with our orchestra, and you know, it's a, actually an interesting hobby to hear an orchestra you know well play in different halls. All and right the best way to figure out exactly how how much difference the hall can make for better or worse in the way that, that something sounds. And Roder, I mean, you've heard like all the best ones, right? Carnegie, obviously, Concerca Bone. Yeah, it is really, I love to hear the Chicago Symphony in halls with wonderful acoustics. I, you know, I hear the musicians in the orchestra talk a lot amongst themselves about having to work harder to fill orchestra hall with sound, given that that hall has a, you know, a bit more dry acoustic than, than other halls around the world, particularly the, the brass players. And obviously the CSO brass has a reputation as being a very powerful section in the orchestra. But I think the orchestra as a whole works harder in orchestra hall, such that when you hear them at the Concertgebouw or at the Musikverein or at Disney Hall um, or at Carnegie, I haven't had the good luck to hear them at Severance Hall, another of the great halls in the US, but I'm sure that would be true. The CSO shows up and does what it does at Orchestra Hall in a space that's, you know, much more resonant. And sometimes it's a sound that just pins you to the back of your chair or blows the roof off the place. It's a very exciting experience when the orchestra goes on tour and when that happens. Well, there are two juicy topics I know I wanted to get into uh, with you since you're here, Roderick. Um, basically, conductors and players. More specifically, what's your perspective on the difference that the conductor makes I mean, we we know that the conductor make can make a huge difference, but you've heard now so many of the standard pieces conducted by different maestros in Chicago. And, you know, what do you see from conductors? What do you like to see? What do you not like to see? And then, you know, what do you hear the different interpretations? Sure. I guess maybe one of the things that I love most is to hear a piece that I'm very familiar with and feel like I'm hearing lines or figures or, you know, gestures that have always been in the piece and I've never heard before. And they come out from the texture for the first time. Great conductors um, have a knack for doing that. Ricardo Muti has a knack for doing that, given, you know, his background with vocal music and with opera. It's it's really amazing when you all of a sudden hear an inner line, say, in the violas or in the French horns. You're like, oh, where did that come from? I wasn't, I never knew that was there before. But I would say that the biggest difference, you know, when you see different guest conductors, music directors show up and, and conduct great orchestras like, you know, the LA Phil, the Chicago Symphony, is the, the sense that you get from 
the musicians on the stage. When it's a great conductor that the musicians respect, you can immediately tell because everybody's sitting on the edge of their seats, you know, watching really carefully, just really at the front of, of every note. There's a sense of care and of um, immediacy. Not that there's not a sense of care when there's other conductors, but you immediately get a sense when it's a when there's a conductor on the podium that maybe, you know, didn't have a great set of rehearsals, or maybe it's a new person that hasn't had a ton of experience conducting at this level. And the visual sense on the stage is very, very different. And obviously, it's much nicer to go to a concert where you feel like, um, you know, everybody's engaged and the performance is one where the musicians look happy and that they're, you know, playing their best for whoever's holding the stick. I think that's one of the hardest things about having this job and doing it week after week is that it's not possible to have that level of commitment all the time. I mean, I guess ideally we would. I don't know if you could actually handle that kind of intensity, but there are weeks that just for whatever reason, you know, it's a great conductor or it's the repertoire or whatever, but you know, they really do work amazingly. And and yeah, as you as you say, that's apparent to the audience. I think, yeah, I mean, as a professional, part of our job is to go in with the idea that you're going to bring your best every week. But I guess I don't know whether we want to use the word charisma or or what, but there are qualities that certain conductors have that actually really do mean something, and it's maybe hard to to define what they are. Maybe it's there's parallels to great dramatic actors or great great performers in other fields. You know, there's something there that's special and makes people pay attention, it makes the audience pay attention, and makes the musicians playing under them pay attention. And as Roderick said, it's not that we wouldn't otherwise. There's a level below which our orchestras don't play because there's a level of professionalism there. But there's also a playing field that that is above that. That you know, It's like, what's the difference between a very good concert and an excellent concert and a truly superlative or life-changing concert? And obviously, the there's many factors that that go into that. And obviously, the different people in the audience, it's not going to be life-changing for everybody. But this is where where a, tr- a great conductor doing something that he or she does really well can really make the difference between something that's merely good or very good and, and really, really special. So I'm curious for everybody here, I mean, like both of you, especially since you're guests, but I mean, what are, can can you think of some of those life-changing concerts and how many of them would you really would you say you've you've experienced? <laughs> I mean, is it just like a very select few? Is it like if you a have lot? one every Thursday? Your life takes a whole new direction. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's how it is. So that's an interesting question. I guess one of the concerts I would put in my list of top five that I've ever heard. I think you, all three of you are probably in the orchestra. This probably would have been back in 2010, and it was You're again cutting it close. <laughs> Maybe not. The Chicago Symphony with Ricardo Muti performing Otello at yeah. Carnegie uh, Hall. Okay, okay. We were there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Krasimir Stoyanova was um, singing uh, Desdemona and, or Desdemona, however you pronounce the name of that character. You should know, Akiko. I can't remember at this point. They said Desdemona. Right? Desdemona. In the, in the, in and I think it was the first time I'd ever heard her sing live. And even though I'd obviously listened to great singers in other contexts or in recordings, to hear that voice seeing that part live and that performance just completely blew me out of the water. And the orchestra sounded amazing, again, in the acoustic of Carnegie Hall. It was one of my top five concerts of all time, I would say. 
Well, and that, that, I remember that concert well also. So from the stage, I've, I had the feeling, not that I don't ever need to play this piece again, but just that I can't imagine doing it any better than we're doing it right now. Coming back to conductors, obviously Muti had a lot to do with that because this is music that he's known most of his life. And you could tell, we could all tell during the rehearsal process, it's like, this is in his DNA almost. And, you know, you can't fake that. He had an idea of what he wanted to do with every phrase of the piece. And he had some general things that he said to the orchestra beforehand that got us, you know, sort of playing Verdi in the way that he likes to have it played. And some conductors don't don't bother to... I, I sometimes wish that a conductor would would sometimes more often make a few general statements to the orchestra about what they do or don't want for a particular piece. Oftentimes, you know, this, you know, you dive in, you sort of start working in the weeds about details about this and this and that, but not that that's not useful, but to put a sort of a a wider umbrella over stylistic concerns. And so again, I'm getting more general and away from the question, but Muti with Verdi especially does that. And it makes a huge difference in the way that we, we play the music. I mean, I remember the way he dealt with tremolo and he was so specific about all kinds of different tremolo and, you know, some conductors you know, to what you're talking about, Roderick, where you can see on stage everyone's involvement, even in <laughs> parts like tremolo, which are traditionally the parts where I might want to just lean back and, <laughs> you know, rest the wrist on the leg or something like that. But I mean, some conductors will, yeah, if they're, if they're really feeling kind of spicy, they'll come on guys, you have to, you have to care about the tremolo, you know, put some effort into it or play it faster or whatever. And, you know, Muti, he was very specific. This tremolo has this dramatic meaning. This tremolo has this dramatic meaning. And that was a kind of a sneaky way to get us all involved, not just for fear of him because he was the music director and he's just a gener genuinely scary guy, but yeah, giving us a reason to care about it. Off the topic of, of life-changing performances, but just something funny that Muti said I mean, he he said many many incredibly meaningful and and funny humorous things but in Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet uh, there's you know violence of pizzicato one of them and I wish I could remember the exact spot that he was talking about but he stopped us and he just looked you know semi disgusted and he said it sounds like Juliet's throwing rocks into the water <laughs> <laughs> blowing that's nice actually one I mean if we are not including our previous performances, you know, going back to our chamber music days and our life-changing concerts, if we're sticking to, you know, our orchestral careers, for sure one of mine might also have been one that you played in, Nathan. I can't remember. It was Pierre Boulez doing Mahler II. Might have been during the few years I was in the CSO before you joined. Uh, that might have been. But it was my first time to play the piece. And I knew the piece well from recordings and loved the piece. So it was part of the reason it was great for me was that it was my first time doing it. Also, Boulez wasn't known as a mal big malarian most of his career. And later in his life, he started sort of one by one doing the Mahler symphonies and had done several over over the years with us. But this was the first one that I had done with him. Piece I loved and rehearsals were, you know, they everything went went fine. And during the first concert, in the last movement, the orchestra comes to a stop and the choir comes in for the first time. And I think I was probably looking down at the stage, just kind of taking it and basking in the glory of this beautiful sound that was in the context of the piece 
being heard for the first time. And at one point I looked up just at, at Mr. Boulez and tears were streaming down his face. So it was a number of things coming together. First of all, Boulez, this renegade whippersnapper from the 50s who said all these controversial things. Actually, it's like he's this beautiful tonal music that in some ways <laughs> couldn't be more different from some of the things he wrote. It's like, I'm enjoying this, but why? <laughs> exactly. And also, I didn't know him as well then as I came to know him a bit later, but he's a very private man. And so it was obvious that it was a... I don't know. The moment was really poignant for me. It was a great performance, but I was also influenced by these other factors of playing the piece for the first time. It, obviously, the hall was full because it's a piece that tends to draw in the audience. And then, you know, to do it with somebody like Boulez, who I had tremendous respect for, and then see that the piece was really getting, you know, to him in that moment in the way that it was to me, all these factors kind of came together. Certainly, I won't forget it. And I've done it, done the piece since then, and it's great, but I'll always remember that particular time. And it's, you know, sometimes great performances and memorable performances, yes, they have something to do with the music, but they also have to do with the circumstances. I mean, another one that I can remember, not because the repertoire was great, but because of the occasion of it was when Daniel Barenboim returned to Chicago after being away for, what was it, Brandt, something like 12 years. You know, he left his job as music director of the Chicago Symphony, not on great terms, like sometimes tends to happen when, you know, great artists get come at loggerheads to each other for one reason or another. And he was back in the hall. He hadn't come back since, you know, the day that he ceased his tenure as music director. And um, there was a, an electricity in the audience. And there was a palpable sense of anticipation of everybody who was there. The repertoire, I think, was um, I've Lost, which is, you know, not necessarily a great piece of music. But notwithstanding that, it was a very, it was an electric performance. And some of the things that he did with even some of the most familiar music um, in that piece, you know, the Moldau, which is a piece that most people probably played in, you know, high school or youth orchestra. Some of, of the um, you know, real time sort of pushing and pulling things that he was always famous for doing in the orchestra, things that were almost felt improvised, right? He, he loved to take chances with you know, the interpretation of music and, and take it beyond what was just written on the page. He was famous for for doing things that sometimes even resulted in accidents because he you know, improvised or pushed things too far. But it, it really worked out magically in that um, in that particular clip. And it was a performance that I'll definitely remember. I think the there's a clip from the Moldau on YouTube if you if uh, you know any listener wants to Google that, but it was a very, very satisfying <laughs> night. I feel like you should give your email address for all the people who disagree that Mavlast is not a great piece of music <laughs> and they can write to you. That's right. Send the hate mail. To <laughs> but I know what you mean. I mean, it's not, yeah, if you're going to compare it to Mahler 2 or Verdi Opera or something, maybe not a, a show-stopping piece in the same, in the same way. I know that also I think Barenboim, he did so much music with us through his time as music director. I heard this not from him, but it makes sense that it would be true that he, in trying to figure out what he was going to do with us, he wanted a list of pieces that the orchestra hadn't played for at least X number of years, 10 years or 15 years. And it turns out that Mavlast was was on that list. We hadn't done it for a while. And so he wanted to pick something deliberately that, you know, was fresh for, for everybody. I heard that same story a little bit differently, which was that he asked for a list of things he had never conducted 
the CSO in. Yeah. And so he was music director for what, 17 years, 18 years. Yeah. So the list of things he'd never conducted was pretty short and that was one of them. So that's what we ended up hearing. So this happens all the time that (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite, you know, because lots of concerts, lots of whatever. And uh, And plus Roderick's business is, is the details. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I wonder if you could sort of take us on a, a brief tour, Roderick. Um, you would have heard many concerts by um, the various music directors and the, the most important conductors for the Chicago Symphony. I mean, namely during your time, it would have been Baron Boehm as music director, Boulez as principal guest, was that his title? Pierre Boulez, uh, Pierre Boulez Bernard Hytink as principal conductor, maybe? That's right. And then Muti, do you want to talk maybe about a few of the differences that you notice just going to a lot of concerts by each of those? Sure. Wow, that's a wide-ranging question. So Barenboim, right, is a genius. He's well-known as somebody who operates at a totally different level than the rest of us. He's also impetuous. I think he's the kind of person who from a very, very early age was recognized as a prodigy and was probably treated like one all the time. And he's not always the easiest when he doesn't get what he wants. And that's how he conducted the CSO. Some of the performances that he was in charge of were, you know, some of the greatest evenings in in classical music you might've heard. And then at another time, something might've set him off and put him in a mood. and, And it ended up being a performance that wasn't enjoyable for most of the people on the stage. So you never knew what you were gonna, what you were gonna get. He, he conducted in a very, improvisatory way, sometimes, you know, oftentimes not using the score at all because he kept it all in his head. So his performances were always generally exciting. Exciting. I didn't get to hear a ton of performances conducted by Pierre Boulez, but his approach to the music, right, is you could describe as one of a scientist. He was very detail-oriented and his stick technique was very, very precise and, you know, small in a way. And he got a sound out of the orchestra that was where there, there was a lot of attention to detail. And certainly you could tell that the orchestra loved playing for him. I think, Brent, you can correct me, but you called the orchestra collectively called him Uncle Pierre. Is that right? You know, uh, with a lot of, they played for him with a lot of fondness. Bernard Heiting showed up at a time when, you know, Barenboim le- left abruptly and the orchestra hadn't yet engaged another music director. And so he sort of showed up to be a steward for the orchestra during the two or three years before Ricardo Muti came on and signed up as music director. And obviously Bernard Heitink is one of the, you know, he, he just ceased, he just retired from conducting this year after a career that was something like 60 years long. I can't remember exactly you know, how long it was, but one of the, the luminaries of the conducting world. And I also remember a Mahler II performance that he led in Chicago. He actually recorded a, a number of the Mahler symphonies with the CSO while he was there. And yeah, there was this, a very, very much a sense of joy and of respect that you could feel from the audience coming from the musicians on the stage when he was on the podium. Also had a, you know, visually from the audience had a conducting technique that was very economical. And he was able to get a huge amount of sound out of the orchestra with gestures that were very, very small and very reduced and very much reflected sort of uh, the stereotypical, you know, Dutch um, uh, shyness, I guess you could say. Muti 
you know, Muti, I guess you could also use the word impetuous to describe him as as a person. I don't know. He's he, he's fiery and he's a disciplinarian and he is an, you could say, authoritarian if you wanted. He does some incredible, amazing things, particularly in vocal works. And it's an event when he's in the hall and particularly when he's conducting, you know, operas. He's done all of the um, Shakespeare operas of, of Verdi. Um, he likes to do symphonic works with the choir, you know, Beethoven 9, the Verdi Requiem. And it's, uh, we'll, we'll really miss him when he is, when his tenure with the CSO ends in a couple of years. And definitely the other thing I wanted to get to before we wrap up is uh, your impression of the players on stage, things that we should probably be aware that the audience can see or notice, but that we apparently are not aware of. <laughs> well, I've um, got a so whole this, list of yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, <laughs> this is where we go for it. Yeah, this could be anything from personal grooming and dress <laughs> to mannerisms, any of that. We already told the story about Ken coming to the Hollywood Bowl where they have the jumbotrons and telling me I could I, I could probably go ahead and dye my hair. <laughs> yeah, that, anything along those lines. <laughs> and that we should all wear more makeup. Yeah. It's like we can tell the black Reebok shoes you're wearing aren't patent leather. <laughs> <laughs> that is something that actually does stick out. I, I think you'd be surprised to know how much the sh shoes are visually apparent to the audience. And when some of the people in the orchestra don't wear what they're supposed to, i.e. patent leather with a, a tailcoat and white tie, really does stick out. But no, generally, I would say that the thing that is most visually affecting from an audience perspective is when people don't look engaged. And I know that that can be difficult night after night, but you notice right away somebody in the back of, let's just pick on somebody, the viola section or the trombone section who may look bored, who may be tacit during a particular movement, who, you know, may not be playing the most um, important line in a particular work. And, you know, their eyes are not on the music, not on the conductor, sort of staring up into space with an appearance of being bored. That's something that if, you know, if I were the personnel manager, or if I were the stage director of the group, I'd like to tap people who do that kind of thing and, and on the shoulder and say, hey, that it doesn't have a great visual effect. Um, and sadly, sometimes it tends to be the same people who do that kind of thing over and over. The contrary is true, right? That when people do look engaged, that it, you know, greatly enhances the experience. Oh, of course. I mean, and we talked about that earlier. When the music director is conducting a fantastic program and or a new piece that there's a lot of anticipation or excitement for, and everybody looks like they're sitting on the edge of their seat, very engaged, you know, with the eyes peeled and really paying attention to what the music director is doing. Like, obviously, this, the palpable sense of engagement on the stage is one that is very much appreciated from the audience perspective. Anything else, like, you know, anything anything else that, that we're doing that we're appearance-wise that other than the shoes. One of my pet, pet peeves is when um, people talk to each other during the applause. Ah, okay, mm. that's a good one. Um, <laughs> if he hadn't mentioned that one, I was going to mention it too because it's a pet peeve of mine. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, you got to be careful about that. I know. That. Sorry. I think I'm, I'm always blabbing at Nathan. During... <laughs> no, I mean, it's just something that, you know, I mean, I, I was an amateur musician and I played in orchestras growing up, elementary school, junior high school, high school, youth orchestra. And, you know, when you're in that kind of an educational environment, you always get told 
during the applause, you're supposed to be appreciative of the applause. You're not supposed to, you know, yak to, to your neighbor and look disengaged. And it's funny how often that can happen on a stage. And it, it's it's very apparent. It, it Yeah, it, it gives the audience a sense that people are ready to get off the stage and go home. And even though that may be true, it's better to to remember that you're still on stage while you're on stage. I, If I'm charitable, I know why it happens. It doesn't tend sure. to happen if, you know, if you walk out at part of a string quartet. It never happens. Right. So what's the difference with an orchestra? Well, there's enough people out there that any individual feels like, well, semi-anonymous. It's like, well, there's always going to be the conductor out here to accept the applause or, or whatever. And so it, it feels sort of like a safe space to just turn like and start a, talking to your neighbor. Well, I mean, Classic and, mob mentality. Exactly. <laughs> but like, and to be fair, I don't think we're talking about what, what we're going to drink after the concert. Or I think, you know, mostly it's like, hey, you know, that was... I really missed that shift. Did you hear that? Like, yeah, I kind of did. Ha ha. You know, so we, you know, I, I think that we're not totally disengaged. I think that we're, we're still, you know, I think we just forget that it doesn't look great. But I think we, and when I do it, I, I like to think that it doesn't look terrible when I do it with Nathan. I mean, usually with him, I'm just laughing about something I didn't play right. And I assume he heard and. You know, I think we're just uh, starting our post-mortem a little bit earlier than we should. Say, you guys can <laughs> dissect the concert in the car on the way home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, in the car. <laughs> and what do you notice uh, from fellow audience members? Because, you know, obviously on stage, if someone's opening the cough drop in the very front row, we're going to notice and perhaps some of our colleagues will look out there. But when you're out in the hall, what kind of things do you notice from the audience? So I I always say this, that when I win the lottery, I'm going to hire out the hall and um, listen to my favorite pieces in the repertoire with me being the only member of the audience. <laughs> That's uh, perfect. I can remember a performance of Mahler 2, for example, when the choir comes in at sort of the, at the climax of the entire work. It's a very long work. And there was, you know, some audience members sitting in the row ahead of me who started humming along with the choir. Oh. Oh, you know, wow. you can also, it happens all the time. People take their phones out. Thankfully, we've got, you know, usually the ushers are pretty good about coming up and tapping people on, on their shoulders, but maybe they do it with the best intentions. So you know, there's a story recently with Anne-Sophie Mutter and I think Cincinnati audience members started recording her performance and she actually stopped the concert and said that it was either, you know, she was either she was going to put away her phone or, or Anne-Sophie was going to leave the stage. But it's, it's very distracting and not only for the players to see the light of a telephone screen illuminate in the middle of a performance. So that's, you know, that's something that's very noticeable. And to be fair to, we talked a little bit about, you know, musicians talking during the applause. One, another pet peeve of mine is audience members that get up and start walking out the instant the applause begins. Um, maybe they've got to go to the parking garage and, you know, they're trying to beat the crowd out of, of the garage. But come on, give due respect to the performance, clap for a decent period of time and then make your way out. We call that the standing and leaving ovation. Or uh, the walking ovation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I mean, if I pay to go to a concert, I want to stay to the bitter end. I want to when I go to the movies, I want to stay for all the credits. I was just going to ask if you also do that. <laughs> I, you know, it doesn't bother me that much, honestly. Maybe because I get so annoyed at the parking like, situations in general, not just like, you know, not just at our hall, but like I, I get stressed out. The older I get, the more stressed out I am by parking. So I can, they stayed, they stay for the concert. I don't like when people get up in the middle of the performance, like, you know, between movements, maybe, you know, hey, we can still see them leaving. It's not like we can't see this and it is distracting. But if they leave in the middle of the movement, 
you know, I'm going to have to assume it was some kind of emergency or something, but it is, it's, it's distracting. And I find that way more disrespectful than, than leaving after we're done playing. That's fair. Let's establish too, that it's possible to cough well or not well. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you're not well. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it always fascinates me that we hardly ever have coughs or certainly try to control coughing spells. I mean, I've, I've had like one maybe during my, my career, but we're sitting there, you know, I guess we're concentrating. Maybe that's why, but we don't just like suddenly erupt in percussive coughing in a way that, in the way that sometimes happens in the audience. And I think, well, if we can, if there's a hundred people here and we can keep it together for two hours, I want to be judgmental, but I sort of feel like you could probably try a little harder. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, one answer to that is just that sometimes the audience members probably don't understand how clearly the people on stage can hear or just in general how how aware we are of the behavior of the audience that's one of those things about disney and i think you mentioned that too about disney hall that that you can see everybody in a way that's not that's not in every hall it's not always like that but because disney prioritizes you know everybody having good sight lines that the flip side of that is that that everybody can see everybody else and and everybody can hear very clearly what's happening so i think you know those those coughs really ring out very percussively not to use that word again but yeah <laughs> there's certainly a lot of the time you know we're listening it's a passive experience if you're watching television or you're watching a movie and you know it's maybe easy to make the leap if you're an audience member at a play or at an orchestra concert that not that you're not watching live people but just that your behavior is sort of benign to the whole experience whereas you know we we know all too well that a great audience the missing piece of what makes an experience amazing you know you can play your heart out for an empty hall but obviously we'd rather do the same for an an audience that's we can tell is engaged so and we're you know most of the time it's it's true that we get that but it's fun. funny i feel like during a play people are like less likely to do it cuz like those people are walking around like they know that they can i think they're more aware that the actors can see them even though I honestly think if you asked an actor, I'm not sure they would, they're probably so engaged that they're not really seeing what's out there probably. But I think there's more of a sense like, oh, you know, this person's going to see me if I leave. So um, we've gone to a number of places. I almost never see people leave right in front of the actors or anything, whereas people leave right in front of us. So I think, <laughs> yeah, granted, we're looking at a music stand. We're not looking out into the audience. So this, yeah. They assume we can't see them or something. Well, there's a collective problem there too right because it's if it's a faceless group of 106 people it's a lot easier to walk out in front of them than than, you know a couple of actors but i mean yeah the coughing just go ahead and do it right i mean and also try to do it during a loud part of the music it's super annoying when somebody it sounds like people save up all of their coughs for the very the most delicate softest portions of the performance Sometimes I hear, you know, I hear that happen between movements a lot too. Like it's been perfectly quiet during movement and there'll be a, whatever, 30 second break before the next movement begins. And all of a sudden it sounds like tuberculosis, tuberculosis ward. ward. Yeah. Exactly right. It's, it's well, it very is strange. One of, the, one of the world's great mysteries is why, why, why the coughing erupts between like, if you could hold it that long, why do you, and it's, it's a, not good it's for you to cough. It's a social calm. phenomenon because <laughs> people are fundamentally uncomfortable with silence sometimes. Oh, yeah, that's. So you feel somebody else, the guy down the row from you lets one, you know, go. So you're like, okay, my turn, you know. It's amazing. There's one, and then immediately there's a spate of a bunch of others. 
And that's, it's only getting more so. I think people are less and less comfortable with silence. <laughs> Don't we know it? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. And this was a really fun one for us to get, you know, an outside perspective, but at the same time, still an inside perspective because you're uh, maybe not a typical audience member and you're also in the family. So thanks, Roderick, for being here. And thanks, Brant, for uh, coming back. If you want to catch Brant's solo episode, so to speak, that's uh, way back episode number six, where we talk about the importance of playing chamber music and plenty more orchestra stories there in episode six with Brant Taylor. But Brant and Roderick, thanks for joining us today on Stand Partners for Life. Thanks for having us. Now we'll turn off the mics and say everything we couldn't say on tape. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Thank you. <laughs>